We at the Nevers Podcast would like to apologize for the sound quality with the following interview. A poor internet connection caused some glitching throughout. We thank you for your understanding. The Nevers Podcast presents In Conversation With. Everybody, this is uh, Heather from uh, the Nevers Podcast, and we are here with Ruth Goodman, a freelance historian of the social and domestic life of Britain. Hi, Ruth. Hello. She works with museums, theater, and television, and educational establishments to consult on the accuracy of their um, their storytelling. And uh, she has been a consultant to the Victoria and Albert Museum and the film Shakespeare in Love. She is a member of the Tudor Group, a reenactment organization for the Tudor period. And her new book, The Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal into Our Homes Changed Everything, is coming out in October in the United States. You can find Ruth at ruthgoodman.me.uk. Thank you so much for being here, Ruth. It's it's a real, it's, it's really great to have you with us on the show. Obviously, being as it's Victorian-based, we really wanted to get someone knowledgeable in that era on so we could pick your brains a bit about some of the grounding that we may be seeing when the Nevers finally airs. Well, thank you very much for asking me. It was really good of you. Very exciting. Uh, yes, we, we. so we've seen pictures from the outtakes of the set, and it looks like they are working really hard to be dead accurate or as accurate as they can be for something you're recreating. So we really wanted to get your perspective on how actual history would inform what was going on with the show. That actually reminds me of a, a quick question I had. In a previous interview, one of the an actor playing a scientist on the show mentioned that he had a big lab with an elevator in it. I could remember, were elevators period appropriate or are they kind of making him seem more advanced than the era? Exactly period is it? I mean, which date exactly? Yeah, the Victorian period was like a big span. So that's something... That's the problem. We're not, we're not entirely sure. He's been quite cagey about the details. It seems quite early on in the era but then we've seen like steam-powered cars and elevators so we have a distinct suspicion he's kind of making it his own part of the victorian era a part that may not factually have existed no an awful lot of people when they think victorian they really mean the very 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 end bit um Hmm. You know, and quite often, lots of things that people imagine to be Victorian are actually early 20th century. Right. I mean, I think there were a few turning up towards the end of Victoria's reign, but it's not common until the 20th century. That's what I figured. It's good to get a historical view. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Like, right before World War World War One, you would see stuff like that, so... So for our listeners who may not know, Ruth, what what is a, um, a historian and how did you become one? <laughs> um, by accident. I became a historian <laughs> by accident, entirely by accident. Um, it sort of grew out of a hobby, actually. Um, initially, my husband's hobby. Um, but it just gripped me, the, 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 the business of being alive in the past, about the, the very basic nitty-gritty systems, how you coped, what it, you know, what you thought about things, just the ordinariness of life. And initially I found great difficulty in finding out about that from books. I, it wasn't a popular subject. And the more ordinary you went, the less there seemed to be written about it. The more female you went, the less there seemed to be written no. about it. And when you put the two together, the practical business of living at home, doing the ordinary things, it, it was almost invisible in the historical record that, as far as I could find. So it became a bit of a mission, really, to find out answers to very, very simple, very basic questions, such as how do you cope with cleaning yourself after you've been to the loo? You know, I mean, really <laughs> basic, simple, physical stuff. How, how do you do that? <laughs> and, 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 you know, that drew me more and more. And the history of washing up, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I haven't found anybody else who's interested in it. And yet it's something that's part of everybody's life. Everybody at some point has to wash up, no matter who they are, where they are and and it turns out that there's a really quite complicated history to that it changes time and time again as various different situations and technologies change you know there's way more to it than you might imagine and that sort of thing just drew me in drew me in and drew me in so it, it's sort of been a 
a long process um, and one driven entirely by curiosity. I think that's what we want to kind of get to, too, the everyday life. The show is not about royalty. The show is not about the aristocrats. The show is centered around orphans in an orphanage, if you will, and the underclass and and crime, you know, seedy people. And so, so we're definitely more interested in how their lives would be in whatever era this is, this is supposed to be. So Victorian times, whether rightly or not, were noted because of Charles Dickens for um, the debtors' prisons, the orphanages, the workhouses. How accurate was Dickens' portrayal? Is- well, Dickens is pretty good. Dickens okay. really is pretty good. I mean, he was there, for goodness right. sake. And his own childhood was full of poverty and fear and difficulty. So, you know, he had a very first-hand approach to those sorts of issues. As we all know, Dickens had to go out to work at 12, you know, 12 years old in a, in a, in a factory doing something really very menial. And that stayed with him all his life. He found it a very traumatic experience and it stayed with him. And in one way or another, he continued writing about that child in a difficult situation over and over again. So I would say Dickens has a real authenticity to it um, that, that later writers, you know, can't have because they weren't there. Right. So how were, in particular, how were orphanages maintained? Who Was it the church that took care of them? Were, was it private people that started them up like businesses? Like I have no idea on what what entailed. Initially, it was very ad hoc. Um, and there weren't very many. Um, so, you know, way more children in need of care than there were places to care for them. And it was sort of inherited from older systems. So it was, it was very patchy. You know, some places had reasonable provision, other places had nothing at all. Um, and, and that's why the new poor law was originally sort of brought in to try and sort of offer some sort of more uniform system across the country and you get the workhouses. But I mean, it's, it's, it's about staying alive there's no finesse to it at all when that sort of system first comes in at the beginning of victoria's reign the whole country was actually struggling on feeding itself um it's the same time as the irish potato famine and Um. you know i mean the things that happened in ireland are horrifying but it has to be said there wasn't actually very much spare food in britain either um you know even though we probably if we'd had the political will and i'm I'm embarrassed and horrified to say that the political was completely lacking. I don't think we would have been able to to solve it, you know, to to feed everybody. It was a really, really hungry time. People all over the place, right across Europe, were dying of starvation. And that included England. People were dying in ditches. So that first provision that we sort of see at the beginning of the Victorian era is about trying to have enough to stay alive. There's no frills. There's no, like, whether you're an orphan in an orphanage means you've got both parents lost or whether your parents have abandoned you or whether they've handed you over in a desperate hope that somebody will give you a meal because they certainly can't. You know, it's very hard for us to understand the level of desperation. By the end of the Victorian period, things had changed. There was, because of globalisation, and the bringing in of food from America particularly, we were actually much better fed. And it's only the poor who were really, those, those whose families Typical. disintegrated. <laughs> you know, well, do you know what I mean? The, the difference between sure. the sort of the poor working family the, the, where, the, where there was no food and it was just at the beginning of the era and the end of the era where if you had work, you could eat. Yeah. And, and the differences in those two situations are quite big. But nonetheless, orphanages in all their types throughout the Victorian period are really mostly concerned with getting food in children's bellies. Um, So you you mentioned, you covered the part where not all orphans, you know, were orphans and orphanages. It was just children that could be orphans, but also couldn't be cared of or given by given up by their parents. How would one leave an orphanage? Was it, was it really kind of an adoption thing or more of just a stable to keep you in until you could get age out and work? Basically, it's a stable to keep you in until something else can turn up. Um, so, you know, if you could find any other sort of work, you went to it. If the, you know, the people who were paying for these situations, whether they were doing it through charity or whether they were doing it through the local rates in a, in a sort of government organized sort of a way. Nonetheless, you know, they don't want to keep shelling out. They're very, very keen to get 
children established out supporting themselves as soon as possible. They're looking for work for these children almost immediately. Right. Basically, by 12, everybody's in full-time work regardless. So our idea of children has to be rethought within that Victorian period. Um, we, we know from you know books like Oliver Twist and a lot of, a lot of Dickens' work, really, there's yeah there's kind of street gangs and crime and things was there really kind of mob-like structure to the gangs were they organized in london or the other major cities or was it just a kind of a giant free-for-all of people taking what they could and killing what they couldn't i, I, I think your giant free-for-all is probably closer to the truth i think <laughs> The, the, the idea of organised crime has always been very attractive to journalists and anybody else who writes stories. Um, and it's the same today, isn't it? People love to talk about organised crime, mafias. There's a certain glamour to it. And there has been since people first started doing any sort of fictionalised crime writing. So you mm. can see that right back into the 16th century when we start getting the first sort of publications in London about organised crime gangs, um, the Tierra Two, uh, the Damned Crew. They're all 16th century organised crime, supposedly. Um, and, you know, there's already from that 16th century a supposed hierarchy of different jobs within the organized crime world and whether that has ever been really true is <laughs> something you probably have to take up with with somebody who did criminal psychology or something i think bits of it shade towards that sometimes my own feeling is it's mostly fiction um that that crime is mostly unorganized um and desperate quite often quite desperate how was crime generally identified? Like, was there a lot of police presence? Was it left to sort of citizens' arrests? And w what was the prosecution structure like? The Victorian era is the moment when we invent policing in a formalised way. Interesting. Uh, before the Victorian era, the only policing was done basically by volunteer. Yeah, exactly. It does need the air quotes around it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like a sort of volunteer thing. And and interestingly, um, the American sheriff system is uh, the, the old sort of Wild West sheriff and the posse is actually closer to what was going on than anything else. It, it's just that whilst we managed to get some form of modern formal policing started here a bit earlier, it took a little bit longer in the Wild West. You know, mm. people were establishing from scratch. So they used the older posse system um, <laughs> for longer. But that had been what we did here. We would... Um, uh, elect or recruit a constable out of the parish the parish would choose a constable and sometimes it went in a rotation between different blokes in the you know somebody who was vaguely suitable would get sort of appointed as the parish constable and if there was a crime he was supposed to raise the hue and cry which basically meant he stood out in the street and shouted for all his neighbors to come and help him um, and for quite a long time, um, there was actually laws that said you had to keep a cudgel just inside the door, like a big stick. And if the constable raised the hue and cry, the adult men in the family were supposed to pick up the big stick and run out and go and give him a hand. Um, well, you know, it sort of works in a village-ish. Yeah, I mean. Not so great in a city. Yeah. <laughs> and And... So, so eventually, you know, other things had to be organised. And the Bow Street Runners are the very beginning of modern policing the world over. But initially it starts out as sort of informers and um, people who are paid by results for their policing. And it gradually turns into something a bit more regulated. Um, and we see this move from the, the sort of hue and cry and blokes with sticks through to a modern police force happening during the Victorian era. So it's very, very dependent. When are you talking about as to which stage along that journey they've got to? Well, clearly in America, it's just blokes with sticks. Still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not much has changed. In sort if anybody's been watching the TV, it's just blokes with really big sticks. So. <laughs> and serious stick envy. Um, <laughs> It, it seems, looking at the character profiles, there is talk of actual police officers and like detectives and things. So I'm assuming, it, just judging from that and from your descriptions, I'm guessing we're talking toward the later part of the era 
sadly, as much as I love to hear the phrase hue and cry, I don't think we will. There will be no cudgels to hang off doors. Or, well, there probably will, but not officially. They won't be law-abiding cudgels. <laughs> They'll be just, you know, say no more cudgels. But if you were apprehended by one of these posses, and they didn't just hit you with the cudgel and then leave, what sort of prosecution and penalty were there? If you were accused of break of breaking the law and you it was you know dead to rights they had you yeah would they throw you in a, in a poorhouse or what would the what were the, the uh penalties there were lockups and jails uh established um and people were putting them then taken to the courts go through a, a legal process which is you know i mean that's what our modern legal processes are all based on so they're relatively familiar um the big divide is when um we change from being hanged for everything into into starting to use prisons for punishment much more. And then there's this great big building of prisons right across Britain, certainly. Um, and that this system also rolls out then across globally as a, a different way of dealing with criminals. So again, the early part uh, of Victoria's reign, you're still seeing quite a lot of offences having the, penal- the death penalty. Um, and But the number of offences for which you can be hung drops and drops and drops, um, and prison sentences take over. Um, we also have a period in which they try the silent system, um, in which people are kept t- permanently in um, solitary confinement, um, and a silence as well, no speaking. And you could be punished for any speech, of any sort, um, and you might go years, therefore, without hearing a human voice and not being allowed oh, to voice awful. yourself. Um, so much so that the chapels were actually built so that when prisoners went to chapel, they all sat in a separate wooden cubicle so that they couldn't see each other. All they could see would be the, the priest or vicar wow. or you know, whoever was officiating. Mm. Um, and um, exercise would be in a, in a yard and they made wear a special hat so that they couldn't make eye contact with anybody so that you could only see your, your feet. Um, of course, an awful lot of people went mad. Sure, sure. <laughs> You know, surprise, surprise. I'm going mad hearing about it. Yeah. So eventually it was sort of softened off and gradually a small amount of human contact was allowed in the system. But it was quite a long period in which in that was, you know, the punishment was this silent system. Um, So, again, we're seeing a real change. You know, the Victorian period is full of change. Every period of history is full of change. Sometimes people say to me, oh, it all changes so much faster these days. That is the most utter bunkum. (laughs) That's <laughs> a bunker. Everything has always changed really fast and really <laughs> often, you know? I mean, anything you look at in the past, it's change, 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 change. It's the only constant thing is history, permanent, continuous change. Um, so if we're thinking at the end of Victoria's reign, we're looking at a, a position where, yes, Prisons are well and truly up and running. So, again, it's going to be very familiar to a, to a, a modern viewer, really. Um, the brick-built cells, you know, people locked up for hours a day. That is going to be something that was already going on by the late Victorian period. So, um, in many ways, that whole criminal justice system is quite easy to get your head around because it's not so very different. But it had only just arrived at that. It had only just got there. It does seem like that was, as you know, time is always changing. That was very much a period of upheaval in the kind of the uh, administering of the law. A lot of these characters do seem to be on the slightly sketchy side. (laughs) So I'm guessing there's going to be quite a focus on crime and punishment. It'll be interesting to see. But there's an actual detective in it. There's an actual detective with a role, Mm. uh, Ben... Mm. uh, Chaplin. Um, so that pushes the theory it's later from what Ruth is saying. It's a late it's later in the era. Bit of a a bit of a left turn at this point. So we've we've covered sort of the law and crime and punishments. How was the news disseminated in Victorian England? Were there such things as kind of newspapers that were given to shown about? Yeah, newspapers have been going for ages by then. They have a long history already, um, and that's partly due to the technology of paper making, changes in the technology of printing, 
and a change in tax regime. And all three things make it a lot cheaper. So early on in the Victorian period, there is a paper tax. So all paper, you pay tax on whether it's newspaper or wallpaper. And that, of course, <laughs> obviously pushes the price of newspapers up. And um, there is a big campaign to get rid of it because it was, you know, considered to be a tax on reading, a tax on learning. So there was a big campaign to get rid of paper tax. Um, there was also, as I say, a huge change in printing technology when the old lever presses got replaced by roller presses. And that, of course, cut costs enormously and speeded up the number of copies that could be produced. So that makes a big difference. And also papermaking technology itself changes dramatically within the period. So you've got a sort of at the beginning of the Victorian era. Yes, there are a number of newspapers. They have quite a small circulation. They're relatively expensive. Um, it means they're a middle class sort of a thing. But more people read them because there was a there was a, a, a tradition of passing them on. So you would purchase a paper and then you would send it in the post to your mate who would read it, send it in the post to his mate or hand it round to the coffee shop. The early newspapers went through about six people's hands um, within the sort of first week of their publication. So even though the numbers of people buying it were small, nonetheless, quite a lot of people read it. But as that price goes down, they start to become available to much wider groups in society. And by the sound of detectives, <laughs> I think we're talking at a point in which the, the penny dreadfuls were out and about, which are the tabloids of the day. And they are sensationalist and, um, you know, they're full of blood and guts. They love crime stories. They like to, um, they're not always terribly truthful. Um, the journalists involved were really only interested in, yeah, exactly. The journalists involved were really only interested in making some money out of it and pretty much publish anything they could get away with. So, and when you read them to modernize, you know, some of it you think, how on earth? You know, we think of the Victorians as being so prudish. And then you read this stuff and you think, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> you'd never get that past today. Um, so they can be quite eye openers, those penny dreadfuls. And there were loads of them. They were very cheap. By that later period, they're everywhere. Excellent. I'm, I'm very much hoping they revisit a few of those stories throughout the course of the season, because some of them are just amazing. We, so we've, we've spoken to the credibility of the reporting of the era a little <laughs> bit there. How free was the press? Like, Were they literally just allowed to print whatever they could get away with? Was there any kind of oversight it's a bit like today, to be honest, in that technically there are some limits, but mostly it's about what you can sell. And if you go too far in some directions, people stop buying. And that really is the only thing that controls the modern press. And it was the only thing really that controlled the Victorian press. Yeah. Well, on what, in one way that I think we have definitely got one up on the Victorian era... What was literacy rates? What, what were, proving my point wrong there, what were literacy <laughs> rates like? Going on because this is the era in which compulsory education for all first comes in, in the 1880s. And of course, that's bound to make a big difference. To be fair, many people have been looking for literacy for a long time. And, and literacy rates had been rising as people chose with their own good money to seek out whatever education they could grab their hands on. And um, also, there'd been quite a lot of charity provision was being provided to try and help spread literacy. So even by the 1850s, literacy levels are, are, you know, they're doing not bad. They're coming up. They're coming up. They're rising. Very, very, very ordinary people. We might even think of them as, you know, real breadline people are seeing the value of education. So when education becomes compulsory, there's no argument. You know, people don't. I mean, there's a few odd voices, but in general, the working classes go, yeah, yeah, we want that. That's we're we're happy with that. You know, it might be a bit inconvenient. We might not quite like the way it is, but the general principle of education, we want to buy into that. That's good. So, in the eighty from the eighteen eighties onward, all children get some form of basic education. Of course, many of them have finished that provision by the time they're 10, even nine, in particular in areas where people needed a lot of child labour, so particularly the countryside, actually, particularly rural regions, um, the local sort of bigwigs would sort of go, yeah, 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 and have systems that meant that the children could get out of school earlier by making the 
they had to pass a leaving certificate and um, they simply just like made it easier and easier and easier so that younger and younger children could pass it. So although technically you were supposed to stay till 11, an awful lot of children were actually leaving at nine and going into work because the people who set those things needed child workers. And this was this was little boys and little girls. It wasn't just limited to men. Both. No, no, the rule was for both. So we do have because this, you know, we have an underground element in this show. We do know that there's a prostitute cast in the show, and, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit to how um, sex work was regulated and perceived. Was it? Was it legal? Was it? illegal but acknowledged was it like we're just gonna look this way well again it changes <laughs> quite a lot right uh organized no not at all this is the era when the very first regulations about sex start coming in i mean obviously there'd always been the church stuff sure but not within the criminal law um so this is the era when we first have an age of consent so huh. before the Victorian period, there is no such concept at all. And that the age of consent comes in as a result of some investigative journalists campaign. Um, he purchased for cash from her mother, a 12 year old girl. Oh my God. For sex. Um, and he wrote about it. Um, and he tried to make, you know, he tried to make that as a, as a basic. And he described how this was quite normal in parts of London um, that they, that the young girls obviously commanded a higher price because they were virgin. And many people erroneously believed that if you had sex with a virgin, you would be cured of venereal disease. So men who were rattled with syphilis were deliberately looking out for young girls in order to clean themselves. It's utterly uh. foul. And although the journalist himself came in for quite a lot of flack and there and there are elements that make you think to yourself, hmm, he's not entirely, oh, mm, not quite sure about this. Nonetheless, right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, what he made did, you think to do this? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there, there's some elements about it that one isn't quite sure about. But nonetheless, his campaign did eventually lead to um, an age of consent. Huh. at the beginning gave some protection to the younger girls but there's also other things going on the only other form of control of prostitution was to insist upon it, it wasn't to do anything for the girls women it was to protect sailors basically who was suspected of prostitution and you didn't have to have any evidence for this the police could just pick any woman off the street whom they thought might be a prostitute have her forcibly examined and if she, yeah, exactly. So this could include 12, 13 year old girls dragged in off the street, um, have a forcible internal examination. If the doctor in, uh, uh, thought that they were, uh, had, had any form of venereal disease, they could be incarcerated for up to six months. Wow. System of medicine and, um, physical examinations and cleaning that were supposed to clear the disease. I mean, actually, there was no way of clearing the disease. I mean, sure. talking, you know, pre, pre-antibiotics i was gonna ask this is pre-antibiotics right yeah yeah exactly so and the idea was that it was to try and make ports safe for sailors who obviously would be wanting to have sex and pay for it and of course they should be free to go and do that they were men of course nobody ever suggested looking at the the health of the blokes all they, it was just this law to to take women and to examine them and to incarcerate them if they seemed to be ill um, it's it's one of the sort of big things that spurs on the early women's rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, it was just, you know, it's it's like <laughs> it was considered to be so much of an invasion of a woman's bodily privacy. Um, she was in this, you know, younger women were often were described as having been violated by the examination. Um, no recourse whatsoever. It's something that, um, you know, really is at the heart of the early feminist um, movement. And, you know, they eventually managed to get rid of those laws. So prostitution is a really interesting social phenomenon. <laughs> and, you know, there's a hell of a lot going on. I mean, I'm really excited they're including such storylines because, you know, we could all do to hear some of this stuff. And, and you know, you've kind of hit on it already, but I'm curious, and I'm sure it's their classes of prostitutes because there always are. What life is like 
for prostitutes in that era. I would assume with you talking about them being, you know, commandeered off the street, if someone thinks they have, you know, the clap, it wasn't very good. (laughs) I mean, you know, (laughs) has there ever been a time in which sex workers have been treated well? No, of course not. And, and And I think that's very, you know, clearly there were many different types of sex work going on in the Victorian period, just as there are now. And some people somehow manage to cope <laughs> and some have a harder time and don't cope. And, you know, it's a huge variety of experience going on during that bacteria, Victorian era. Um, there were some women who were managing to almost sort of, you know, high class courtesan stuff. There was a little bit of that, but there was also an awful lot of squalid unpleasantness. Sure. Um, a lot, you know, prostitution has always been associated with poverty it's always been associated with cities um at the east end of london you know it was it was pretty hard for a young girl really to to what other work was there for many of them i mean you know domestic service mm-hmm. in which you're at everybody's beck and call paid a pittance work every hour god sends and you might also get pred- you know uh, um masters and sons of masters who are quite predatory you know, I'm so glad I don't live then. I'm so glad I live in the modern world. So, so you you've segued great to my next question, which is, what were gender roles like there, and the plight of not just prostitutes but working women in the poor class? And were was how was differing sexuality acknowledged? Was it considered acceptable, like, or was homosexuality and all that kind of stuff just? Sin, taboo. Completely, completely unacceptable. Utterly, totally, completely unacceptable. Um, this is also the era in which we get the first sort of real legal framework for persecuting people uh, uh, who were men. I mean, um, most the, the laws just never really were willing to accept that women would have sex with women. Or if they did, they would, they just pretended it didn't happen. But men having sex with men, it's this era that it becomes such a crime. Well, not always. It had been against the law since Henry VIII's time. But oh, wow. generally, people didn't get prosecuted for it. Um, generally, in that earlier period, people no, just, just couldn't quite out, believe it. Out windows they just out. couldn't quite believe it. I mean, what? And then- so if you you hear about sodomy in the sort of the 16th 17th century people don't actually necessarily mean man on man sex the word sodomy could also mean bestiality it could mean anal heterosexual sex you know the words were sort of a bit more amorphous and 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 vague (laughs) and because of this vagueness not much went on legally a bit but not much and it's the victorian period that it all sort of tightens up Um, And the words get defined much more closely and there becomes a bit of a moral crusade against homosexuality particularly. But it's preceded by a moral moral crusade against uh, masturbation. That, you know, for most of the Victorian period, that's the real baddie. That's the thing. Really? (laughs) And you find, I mean, you think to yourself, surely modern, you know, surely, surely. But it's there, you know, like. Big articles in the Times newspaper about the awfulness of all the masturbation that's going on in, in public schools. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> sure. And, I mean, the Americans, I'm mean, afraid, afraid America was even more prudish about this than Britain oh. by, by quite a long way. I quite have, a long way. I there are the most enough. amazing publications about sex being written in America. There still are. I mean, there, we are, we still have a huge abstinence movement here. I had heard. I don't. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I had heard that cornflakes. Henry Kellogg invented cornflakes oh, yeah. as yeah, a breakfast cereal intended to repress the libido. Yes. Which is just the stupidest but most brilliant know, thing I've ever heard. Not too much meat. Him. If you had too much meat, there'd be no, no. You yeah. less meat, less. Kellogg. Yeah. Cold baths, lots of cold baths, very good. (laughs) So so underlying all this is the church, right? I'm sure the church is very important, as it is now, but really important in Victorian times. It was, um, England was all the way Protestant at this point, correct? Pretty much. There's always a few exceptions. And we did have a small Catholic population. We did have a small Jewish population. How much influence did the church 
hold at this time? Um, well, the church was quite already quite fragmented um, into obviously the Church of England, which is the state's uh, nonconformist groups. And this is a period in which there's quite a lot of conflict between going on between these different Protestant groups. And so half, you know, if we talk about when compulsory schooling comes in, it's really noticeable that for a long time you have three types of school going on. You have the new schools, which are brought in basically by, by, the, by the law. Um, but before that, there were two rival organisations. There was the Church of England schools and there was the um, nonconformist schools. And, you know, they were both competing to get as many children in through the door as possible where they could indoctrinate them. <laughs> take them. Absolutely. That is the only fair word to describe it. Um, and there's a lot of attempts to you know you, you get a lot of proselytizing and a lot of trying to poach each other's members going on it's a time of enormous upheaval within um protestantism so the church of england for example is going through a sort of schism in which there's a, something called the oxford movement who wanted to make it a bit more catholic um so that's that's really everybody's all ah! about that meanwhile you've got your your baptists and your, you know, all ah! And then you've got the Methodist movement. And it, it, they're all really quite sort of tribal in the way they're behaving. I think that's the fair way of saying it. I mean, many of them are very committed and, you know, many of them have very strong and powerful charitable arms. I mean, think of the Salvation Army. This is also coming out of the same fervent view of, of what is Christianity, where does it sit, how should it interact with society. But it's also about grabbing followers. It's, you know, all of these things, whether there's charity involved or not, they're, they're, they're making a play for more followers to be a bigger tribe. Was there any separation of church and state? Had, had that hit into kind of legal, legal uh, philosophy yet? I mean, Britain has had a separation of church and state mostly since the Civil War, since our Civil War. Um, way back in in 1620s and uh, 1630s, um, Oliver Cromwell and all that. There's been a sort of an element of separate. Um, we still have a state religion. Um, suppose you know the Church of England is a state-sponsored religion, but we've been very light, I think, in um, pushing that for quite some time. And although the Victorian era, they, they you know there are elements of the church getting involved it was also possible to push back against the church getting involved. There was a tension there um, between how much influence the church has at any one point, and it seems to have varied from area to area, parish to parish, as to how much of a finger in the pie the clergy could right. could get away with. Um, so you see a lot of variation. Uh, that was kind of the the where I was going next with it is like how much influence did they have on the law and the moral code of the time? Uh, what was their role in orphanages and ministering to the poor? And how did they, you know, it, did did they legislate through the pulpit? Was that kind of the way they handled things by influencing their parishioners, if you will? Yes, I think that's quite fair to say. Hang on, there's not very much direct holding of power but there is a lot of influencing going on a lot of moral pressure being applied did um we talked about the the traditional and non-traditional gender roles was the, and that was really a campaign of theirs to to condemn anything that wasn't straight up heterosexual marriage because you talked about the masturbation thing and uh, <laughs> you know and homosexuality I, I think it's wider was clearly than the church, to be honest I think okay. it was wider than the church. I think the whole of society was very, very much in the thrall of the ideology of gender. It's very hard for anybody, I think, to question some of these. I think, you know, the concept that I think, I think a lot of the sort of Darwinism gets caught into that, the idea that men and women are physically different, that their brains are different. I mean, you've got all these people weighing male and female brains and saying, well, clearly women are stupid. You know, <laughs> they've got smaller brains. They must be less clever. You know, <laughs> you've got all that sort of physical biology coming into play as well as sort of church stuff. It's a very complicated picture. And it's hard to find anybody, really. I mean, there's there's such... They sing out, don't they, those voices that claim that men and women are equal. They they really sing out because they are so rare. Um, we mentioned it briefly before when we were talking about kind of the penny dreadfuls and all that, but there is certainly one 
legend of that genre that is to this day still the name echoes in everyone's ears jack the ripper such a huge figure in that era <laughs> look at um, roller eyes <laughs> what i'm like oh not that guy again <laughs> like when did he start appearing on stage when I mean, he was always he was he was in the news he was in all the pain dreadfuls did he start appearing in the plays quite soon or was that a much much yeah, later yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i mean it just went mad and and it's still mad isn't it i mean the amount of airtime that still gets devoted how dull come on <laughs> Oh, for goodness sake, not but again! He was real, right? The crimes were real. These, they, This happened. Yeah. That, I mean, what else can you say? There were five dreadful murders in a world in which there were a lot of other dreadful murders. What do you think it is about Jack the Ripper that has become such an enduring icon? Why is he still remembered when there are probably people really that killed know. just as many? And, and I think it's also true to say that I think he's much more remembered in America than he is here. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, And uh, Much, much more. We, we're not anywhere near as interested. I mean, there's a bit. You, you can't say there isn't some some sort of... But, but almost all the content comes from America. And I think the modern interest in Britain in it is actually borrowed from America. I mean, we've had a bit more recently, but I think it's an echo, a reflection of American interest coming back here. I, I don't know why it seems to be seems to be treated as if it was glamorous. I, I, I find mm. that very odd. America loves their true crime. They love it. And to think of something this horrific happening in, in you know, corseted staid England to Americans... I'm sure is just fascinating to them that how that's really and, weird because you see you know that Victorian and um, Victorian Britons thought that the people who were prudish were the Americans. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you asked a Victorian <laughs> about very corseted and very controlled, they'd have said Americans. Yeah, and certainly they used to make that joke about piano legs. I don't know if you've heard that one. So no, there's I yeah, you see, look at him nodding, <laughs> and you're not nodding. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an American. <laughs> so there's this, there was this, it's often said, you know, the Americans are so uptight that um, they would put um, frills around pianos so you wouldn't have to look at piano legs and think of legs. It's, it's frequently said. But the interesting thing is that it was first said by English Victorians about American Victorians. And, and I think that, you know, I, I, find it, I find it a bit odd to think of a Victorian era as being stayed uptight. Right. Because the evidence isn't there the evidence you know it's like the newspapers you read those newspapers you'd have trouble getting them out today um they're much more explicit than you think they might be um you know and likewise you can read sermons about the evils of prostitution and you think this is the vicar saying this wow (laughs) you know there's you know there were strict moral rules about how you behave but that didn't necessarily mean that everybody followed them and it doesn't necessarily mean that people wouldn't talk about a very wide range of subjects that we might ourselves find a bit taboo and difficult to speak about so i've never really understood why there is this reputation for victorian britain having been uptight repressed a lot of it comes well in my opinion it comes from documentaries it comes from people that want to um uh learn about um the culture in in the UK at the time, and they all talk about what a prig Victoria was and how that filtered down into society. Do you know what I mean? Um, Victoria is portrayed as very, um, and I've gone far. She loved sex, right? I know. Her and Albert were like, "Woo!" So I get it. But for the average American that just watches a forty-five minute, you know, documentary, it's. She's never, she's portrayed as like wearing black for most of her, her reign after Albert died. And it just kind of gives this misnomer that the culture, it was very uptight. And, I'm, you know. No, it's really weird, isn't it? Quite yes. interesting, really. I mean, it's a study in mm. itself. Why, where did we get all these ideas from? Well, you talk about, I, I read, I read a lot of Edith Horton and Edith Horton always made the point that, you know, Americans wanted, especially the upper classes, wanted so badly to have an aristocracy and have a monarchy. So they modeled their, you know, the, the, the 1%, if you will, all ran around taking up these customs and then cranking them up to, you know, nine or 10 on the uptight scale 
So, I mean, if you got out of line in, you know, the in the upper classes, they'd, they'd snub you and you'd never go to dinner with anybody again. So <laughs> like, it's a great read, but you just think, how did those people function like that? It's, it's very much how, I think the reason why people these days think that the Victorian era was like that is because for some sort of reason, that's kind of what we want to believe they were like, because that justifies the way we behave now. Because, oh, that's, that's just how it's always been. It's always been like that. We've We've always been quite repressed, so now we have to keep doing it. But actually, it's kind of just, it's us imposing our idea of how they were on them, rather than actually paying attention to the evidence and letting their kind of obscenity leak through and just embracing that, you know, human nature and that's how we've always been. So yeah, it's just it's very bizarre, but... We're strange creatures, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there is no, there is no force in this universe greater than humanity's ability to delude itself. <laughs> so, I mean, so true, yeah. so true. This is what I want it to be. So this is what it is. Exactly. But speaking of humanity's ability to delude and entertain itself, there was no one in the era greater at entertaining than Messiah Charles Dickens. But we now we view him as this legend that wrote all these enduring tales. Is that how he was perceived at the time? Or to Victoriana, was he more akin to someone like a Joss Whedon, a kind of a populist entertainer who wrote kind of fripperies that were looked down upon by sort of the great works of their time? Or was he, or even then, was he embraced as a legend? Yeah, I mean... He published for a start in magazines on a weekly basis, you know. Um, so that in itself tends to erode people's respect for, for, for a writer. Like serials were looked um, down upon, right? Yeah. I mean, quite a lot of the best Victorian writers wrote in that form. I mean, you know, Trollope did too, you know. <laughs> so that lots of writers wrote in that form because it was a living, um, a regular living and support their families which, you know, sitting at home all on your own in a world where there were no book advances, um, wait, you know, taking a couple of years to write a book with no income. Who could do that? Whereas, you know, the sort of writers from a wider um, sections of, of the population, which includes people like Dickens, had to find a way in which they could day basis. And the magazine format allowed them to do it. But it did allow many people to turn their noses up and be a bit sneery. And, of course, Dickens sort of also partly played into that by doing live readings of his work. He, he, he generated a lot of his income towards the end of his career by doing excerpted readings, which apparently he was a brilliant actor. He did all the voices and oh, wow. you know, it was stunning. It was a real performance. He used to exhaust him, apparently. But, you know, they were amazing performances. Um, but again, you can see how that might, you know, allow people to sneer. Because the theater was looked down upon, like in, the artists like that were somewhat looked down upon, right? Actors, actresses, writers. Yeah, they were a bit, you know, almost, it's it's one of the problems with aristocracy and public school system, you know, there's an elite who think they're it, whether they're any good at anything or not, and they're frequently not. <laughs> uh, how little we've changed. You have to, like... We have to wonder how is like what do you think the secret is to Charles Dickens's enduring relevance? Like how does he still have such an influence on society and the way we tell stories? And what do you think kind of distances him from other storytellers of the era who maybe oh, haven't gosh. remained as popular? Very good at literary analysis, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, I ain't a professor of literature. <laughs> I personally think it's just because he, much like Jane Austen, he wrote about situations that never change. Greed, you know, uh, uh, betrayal, love, you know, instead of, you know, other people writing about things that were super contemporary. For some reason, his writing still answers the mail today about the same human foibles that we have in this era, maybe more, right? You know? He certainly wrote from experience. I think that comes through very, yes, very strongly. And, and a genuine interest in people who had been sort of overlooked or not really included in literature before. I mean, you know, he makes very sympathetic uh, characters out of very poor people. 
think, and that you, that's that's a new thing, really. <clears throat> I, I think it must have been quite shocking in many ways to read it at the time, because up till then, poor characters had hardly ever appeared, and usually only as sort of you know extras in the background. It's not entirely true. It's not completely true. There are, <laughs> but nonetheless, right. he you know he showcases and champions and turns them into heroes. Very very ordinary people. So what should the average viewer keep in mind about the show being based in Victorian England when watching the show from an historical perspective? Like, we don't know, I'm assuming because HBO is footing the bill, they're going to try and be as accurate as they can be. Yeah, yeah, but they'll be American accurate. (laughs) I don't know, it's all based in England, most of the production companies. Yeah, yeah, but all the creatives will be Americans, and they always produce American (laughs) versions. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we stole a bunch of the Game of Thrones people, and they're all British. (laughs) I've I've worked on a number of things, and it's really interesting that... (laughs) The American perspective of Victorian Britain is very different from the British perspective of Victorian Britain. They took very different looks. So they, they dress differently. They they live in differently in different houses. They walk down different streets. It's it's very much uh, a cultural interpretation. So you know, hey, <laughs> we'll we'll have to do a catch up with you after it airs, so you Absolutely. can go see what. See what I said? I was on something and there was some, we, I can't tell you what, obviously. And, and we were in a set that was supposed to be an English country house set. We were in England. And, but the American um, designers had set it, you see, ready. And I walked in and I just thought, this is wrong. Every, why am I feeling this is wrong? This is just like, this is, this is not an English setting. And I, and I thought, what? There was a row of Greek helmets on display stands. What? And it took me a while to realise, never, ever, ever in any English country house would there be a row of Greek helmets. We're not interested in the Greeks. We go Roman. <laughs> we're gonna, we have Roman busts. <laughs> no English country house would ever have a Greek helmet on the sideboard. And you know, it was probably someone that went Greek, Roman, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping that with with a lot of the a lot of the staff writers, I know um, one of the main staff writers for the Nevers is uh, Laurie Penny, who is English. So I'm hoping that if because they do have a few Brits on the writing staff, they will curtail. Might change the tone a little. But yeah, so we've we've covered a lot about the differences and similarities between now and the Victorian era, and we've mentioned a you you've mentioned a couple of times how glad you are that you live now and not then. But are there anything, kind of any points or anything from the Victorian era that you think? today's society would actually benefit from is there anything the victorian era did better than the modern era not being reliant on courses um i think i think modern life nobody thinks they can do anything unless they've been on a course i have to be taught how to do it and and actually this is something i think america does better than britain much better i think there's a bit more independence of thought like that in america but here people are you know like oh i couldn't possibly i don't know how to do that i haven't been untaught there's not very much self learning anymore um you know and people don't just give it a go and try things out and then you know ask around and you know work it out for themselves we used to be good at that the victorian era we were really really good at it people tinkering about with this that and the other trying things out being very you know educating themselves finding out what they wanted to know taking charge of their own um development career-wise or, or or indeed just as a person that that sort of idea that it was up to you to educate yourself was was really very 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 strong and we've lost that and i think that's a shame i think i think we could all do with being a bit more intellectually independent um you know take your own life into your own hands be your own boss in that sort of personal way you're the one in charge of where you're going with your life no one else and you have the ability we all have the ability we're human we have the ability to learn and to learn from 
hugely varied things to learn from other people's mistakes, to learn from doing a thing, to learn from watching a thing, to learn from hearing about a thing. We're really good at that and putting that all together and then going out and trying to do something. We can all do more of it. We should. Mm. Absolutely could not agree any more with everything you just said. So I think that's absolutely fantastic statement. And yeah, we we definitely need to sort of learn by doing a lot more in the current era rather than relying on kind of degrees and qualifications. Just go out there and do something and get good at it that way. I'm actually a self-taught graphics artist and uh, I went to college for English and I ended up uh, in film and I ended up working at a TV station and I was like, this is terrible and I don't want to do this anymore. And I got a bunch of books and sat down at a computer and taught me a bunch of graphic software and all this kind of stuff and taught myself theory and now I'm, uh, you know, a head of branding at my company, so... But, but yeah, I mean, it's, you have to have intellectual curiosity and I think you also have to believe in yourself. So let's talk about educating yourself. We want to talk about your new book that's coming out in October, um, in the United States. It's called The Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal to Our Homes Changed Everything. And you trace the shift from wood to coal mid 16th century. Is that right? Um, and you've spent a lot of years uh, running, uh, you know, running wood homes in historical contexts and uh, country homes managed by their wood. And uh, so what inspired you to write this book? Asked to do some Victorian. I, I've been doing Tudor for donkey's years. And then when I was asked to do some Victorian for, for um, a television series I was doing, um, I thought, yeah, yeah, all right, go on then. <laughs> and, you know, we, I stood there and I thought, Cole, yeah, how hard can it be? You know, it's, it'd be fine. And I was just shocked, really, by how difficult it was to cope with coal, how, how much adjustment I had to make. You know, because I'd assumed, yes, yes, if you were a modern person coming from gas and electricity, it would be a bit of a shock. But I thought, with all this wood experience, that I'd pretty much, you know, just be able to walk into it. Um, and I just kept finding more and more issues in which the old system, the old wood system, didn't work anymore. You know, I was having to come up with something else. I was having to rethink over and over again every aspect of how I was used to doing things. Um, and it was really surprising. And, and I thought, but I haven't read about this anywhere. I, I still haven't. <laughs> and, and I found, you know, like, where did all this extra housework come from? Mm-hmm. And that was a real thing. You know, that, that really, like, why am I more trapped in the home than I had ever been? in a Tudor house. Huh. And, I, and, I, and I thought, well, why hasn't anybody written about this? You know, it was a sort of a long burn thing and I kept finding out about more of it. I kept looking for more of it. Um, but it was very much the practical experience just made me think, this, there's something really going on here, something way more than I expected. It, it, it just, just hit me sideways, really. The coal changed so many things in life, not just the obvious, not just cooking and heating, but like, everything about the home and then I started thinking but you know that means that you need all these other products so oh look that industry ties in with this and I just kept noticing all these like coincidences like oh so that it wasn't around before there was coal that is also inspired by oh goodness we need that if we're gonna have coal and you know like the whole sectors of the economy have to start up because we're burning coal in the home. And that was a, it was just like one surprise and shock after another. It just sort of built up over time, starting with the very practical and then trying to trace what's going on here. That's, that's interesting. So it wasn't, this book is more than just about this, you know, the processes and the systems in the home. And it's, it actually talks about how the economy had to shift to accommodate this whole. I mean, I suspect I mean, there's many reasons why the Industrial Revolution starts in Britain, um, many reasons, but I think this might be one of them. And I'm not sure that if we hadn't shifted from wood to coal in our homes first, whether the Industrial Revolution would have been possible. Because really? there was no coal industry before. I mean, you know, if you look before the home coal, you know, coal mining is less important than candle mining in Britain. The coal was still there. The mining technology didn't change. What changed was the demand. You know, as people wanted to have coal in their homes, they needed to because there wasn't much wood left. Um, 
that stimulated the whole mining industry. It created an industry almost out of nothing. Um, and it moved very quickly, starts in London, 1600, and it moves out by 1700, more homes are fired by coal in Britain than are not. Um, so it had already become the majority by 1700. It, it meant that we had to have new transport systems. It meant, we, you know, so when industry got interested, it was all there ready and waiting for it. It had all been primed by the domestic. And that, that's quite exciting, I think. Um, and then we should find this old set of other industries which are reliant on this domestic shift. The whole soap industry huh. might never have happened. Of course. Before coal, people used wood ash. They didn't need soap. It's only when coal comes in that people start to need soap. And therefore, a soap industry develops. And so does the chemical industry that goes with it. And if you look at the early histories of the, of the sort of international great outpouring of, of, of commercial interest in the chemical industry, it comes from the soap boilers, the soap manufacturers, therefore moving on to caustic soda, moving on to chlorines and bleaches. You know, <laughs> that is the foundation of the global modern chemical industry. All because people started cooking on coal. But then there's all the sort of like small things, wallpaper, wallpaper. There was no wallpaper before we started burning coal. Wallpaper was invented in London, the heart of the coal burning. And it was there because coal makes your house so much more filthy and it ruins all your textiles. So before, if you were wealthy, you had beautiful textiles on the wall, you know? Suddenly you've got coal, rubbish, can't do it. You've got to have something that you can wipe down, something you can replace regularly because it gets so stained. Wallpaper was invented. I had no idea about wallpaper. <laughs> and, and there's loads of other little things. I just, I just found it, the more I look, the more I found. I just find it fascinating. And, and I also found it very uplifting and important that something so big, something so global should be started by the domestic. Yeah. Not by rich people, ordinary people doing ordinary things. Just as a dumb American, was there no more wood? Is that why coal got implemented? Did you guys, did you guys cut down all your trees? <laughs> We're a small place, basically. <laughs> the more land is covered by trees, the less land is covered by crops. So with a finite amount of land, when the population starts to surge, as it did in London, you know, you've got choices. You can't suddenly abandon all your cropland and turn it into wood. Woods, can you? I mean, for a start, it'd take 20 years for the woods to grow anyway. But, but you know, y y you still got to eat. So there was always a competition between fuel and food. And in Britain, that reached a crisis point, particularly in London. And then it moved out from London into the rest of the country. I mean, it's the same now, isn't it? We're once again yeah. seeing that biofuels are beginning to compete with food production, not in Britain, but certainly on the global stage, you know, people who turned to biofuels initially thinking this was a great, you know, sustainable, better than fossil Absolutely. fuels. And now people are saying, but, 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 you know. Because all that corn and stuff was going to third world countries to feed people. And I could go up on a table. Yeah, well, quite. Point. And you, you <laughs> might also be rather shocked to know that forest is being chopped down in America in order to fuel um, uh, electricity stations in Britain. Oh, and we're also chopping down, uh, you know, swaths of forest to make paper, um, hardwood forests, and then putting up these weedy pine trees that grow fast. And it change, it's literally changing the composition of the soil that they grow in. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big issue. I, I mean, the whole business of fuel, how we fuel our homes, it, it's been a huge global important issue for a very long time, and it continues to be. And there aren't any easy answers, are there? They're just There's no simple magic bullet that sorts this out. Biofuels are now in competition with food again. They're also, you know, as you say, ecologically different difficult <laughs> i'm not saying we should go back to coal that was obviously a really bad move <laughs> <laughs> but you know it, i think it's part of an ongoing thing the way we affect the planet sure. um and it's been going on much longer perhaps than many of us have been aware of it's all difficult stuff i don't claim to have any answers but i do claim to sort of like be interested in asking the questions because if you don't ask the questions how is anybody ever going to find an answer right mm. All right, excellent. So, do you have any closing thoughts for us, Ruth, on on Victoriana, if you will, and it's you know it's it's place in British history? Oh, I think it, I think the Victorian era is such a 
resonant period. It's it's close enough to be sort of vaguely understandable. Um, it's not super exotic, and yet it's got a touch of the exotic, hasn't it? Um, you know, so you can so you can sort of like push some of your fantasies and ideas onto it because it's not quite the same as now. It's a, it's different. It's it's a sort of yeah, you can you can try things out in a world that's a little alternative. But on the other hand, it's not so alternative that you can't see parallels and you can't see ways it connects in and out. I think that's why it appeals so much and why it's so good as a setting for fiction, because it allows that sort of playing between the familiar things that still echo and things that maybe come at a different angle. You know, and and that's what fiction is about. Surely, it's about trying out alternatives in your head. It's about thinking about different scenarios, testing how to behave and how to be a human. <laughs> it's it's an exploration of the human psyche in many ways, and a necessary one. I mean, how do you know how? To, nobody knows how to be human. We're always trying to find out how to be human, how how to live a good life, and and these sorts of fictional explorations of other ways of living. One of the ways we do that, I think Victorian is a really good, good, good sort of place to play. Agreed. Uh, mm. There's always been a gla- a little bit of a glance, like a, it's a little shiny to me, a shiny area, but but very very delicate, like not you know big crown jewels. And if you think about it, just lots of intricate detail, much like Victorian design. You hit the nail on the head there of why we're still so obsessed with the Victorian era. It's kind of, it's close enough that we can understand it, but far enough that we can mess with it a bit and it won't change things. It's why I love uh, steampunk so much, because it it takes everything that's great about the Victorian era and just dials it up to 11. I'm I'm very, I'm very glad that uh, we got you here to talk about all this because you you really, you blow my mind on quite a few subjects there. We want to thank Ruth uh, Goodman for joining us. Um, you can look her up at ruthgoodman.me.uk uh, and check out her new book, The Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal into Our Homes Changed Everything. comes out in October in the U.S. Is that the same for the U.K. or are you releasing no, earlier? No, they released it um, in April in the middle of the COVID. So, of course, nobody's ever heard of it and nobody's going to read it. Oh, no. Hey-ho! <laughs> hey, we're going to ch- We're going to change that. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Ruth. We really appreciate it. All right. Have a good weekend. This was a Culture Inject production.